Uh, For the rest of us remaining in here this morning, uh, you can turn in your bulletin or in a Bible to Psalm chapter 6. We're in a series right now looking at the Psalms, and uh, we're looking at the Psalms because they help us to connect with God. Uh, Now, all Scripture helps us to connect with God, but there's something that uniquely helpful in the Psalms uh, because they give us actual words to pray. Um, Every type of human experience and emotion can be accounted for in the Psalms. Uh, The late theologian John Calvin said that the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. Uh, You know, Scripture is wonderfully honest. You may be newer to the Bible. One of the things about the Bible that I love about it is how honest it is. It does not pretend that there are no hard things, no difficult things in life. It's it's full of it. And the Psalms actually give us a word in the midst of those difficult things uh, to pray back to God when we don't know how we ought to pray. Again, we're looking at Psalm 6 this morning. And this is a psalm for when life feels impossible. Um, When you're overwhelmed and you feel like there is just nothing you can do about it. Um, And sometimes um, we find ourselves in those types of situations because of things outside of our control, things that that we've experienced outside of our control or that have been done to us. Uh, Maybe something like an unexpected health diagnosis um, that just completely comes out of nowhere and rocks your world where you have just zero control over it. Suddenly you find yourself just totally overwhelmed. It feels impossible to navigate this new health diagnosis, but this is your new reality. Uh, Maybe it's something like a sudden unexpected job loss. Or the death of a friend or a family member. Or maybe the end of a relationship, getting broken up with out of the blue when you did not expect it. Now life feels impossible because of this thing done to you. Um, Other times we can find ourselves in really hard situations because of things that we have done. Um, Our own unwise choices or mistakes have created really difficult circumstances for us. And now we're bearing the fruit of that. Uh, Maybe there was a really important exam that we did not study for, therefore we failed the exam, therefore we did not get into the school, the program that we thought we were going to get into, and now suddenly we're in a spot that we did not plan for, where where it's looking like our our track is going to be very different than what we had expected. And we know our role in it. We, We know we are responsible for it. Uh, Maybe we have said or done something in a relationship that really hurts someone, and now that relationship is fractured because of it. Uh, Maybe it's legal trouble. Maybe there was a law that was broken, and you had to, you were arrested, and you had to serve time because of that, and, and you know your fault, but now you are trying to pick up the pieces and live a life with a criminal record, and you have to account for this real past. But, but you just it still feels impossible. It still has made life really difficult for you. Um, fill in the blank, wherever you're at this morning, with the life circumstance that you have been in that has felt just totally impossible. Like there's no way forward. We've all been there in some way, or we will at some point. How do we typically react when life feels impossible? Um, despair is a common response where we just begin to spiral into depression, we feel helpless, we feel hopeless. Maybe we self-medicate or just try to numb out with like alcohol or some other substance because we don't like to feel despair, but we don't know what else to do. Um, Or maybe we just try to ignore it and push through. We ignore the hard thing and just push through. We're not going to let us bring bring us down. We're going to keep going just do everything we can to sort of push down the turmoil that we're feeling inside of us. 
All right, rather than get stuck in despair or just ignore the pain and try to push through it, this psalm gives us a language to cry out to God. I'm going to read Psalm 6 for us, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word and we ask you now to speak to us. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. We need to hear from you. We want to know you more. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, two questions we'll ask of this psalm this morning. Uh, What does this tell us about ourselves? The first question, what does this tell us about ourselves? Secondly, what does this tell us about God? First question, what does this tell us about ourselves? Uh, A couple things, and the first is this. It tells us that our sin makes us guilty before God. Look at verse 1. Look at how this psalm begins. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Okay, so we don't know the exact circumstances from which David is praying this prayer. Um, If you read the account of David's life throughout the Old Testament, um, you would know that there's multiple circumstances that he might be referring to here where he has disobeyed the Lord, where he has sinned and and done uh, things his way rather than God's way. Um, But it seems as though part of what is causing David's difficult situation that he's in in this psalm is because of something that he has done that he feels guilty about. Um, So much so that he's asking God not to be angry with him, uh, nor to discipline him in his wrath. And then in verse 2, he asks God to be gracious with him. Um, And it's important for us to note that what David is experiencing here is true for every single one of us. Um, That our sin separates us from God and causes us to be guilty as we stand before him. Um, The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. That that really does, it applies to everyone. The best, most uh, moral person that you know, the most upstanding person, um, and even the, the, the precious newborn baby that seems so innocent and pure, born in sin. It's so bad, it's in our DNA. We're all infected with it. We're all, the scriptures say, dead in our sin. And that sin causes us to be guilty and to stand condemned before God. And there's this really interesting paradox in Christianity um, that in order to have a relationship with God, 
which is the very thing we are created for, to be in communion with God, to know Him, to be known by Him, um, then in order to be in with God, you have to start by admitting that you're not qualified to be in with God. Um, To join this church, the, the very first membership question that we ask is, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure and without hope, save in His sovereign mercy? So so to join the church, you have to be willing to say, I'm not qualified to join the church. I'm not qualified to be here. My own resume, my own merit can't get me in the door. And nothing else in life works this way. Here's one example. How about the path to becoming a Navy SEAL? Uh, In my very, very limited research online, this is what I think the path is to becoming a Navy SEAL. You have to go to a Navy recruiter's office and enlist... Uh, and then you have to get a former Navy SEAL to begin mentoring you throughout this entire process. I would fail right there because I don't think I know any, unless someone's here. Um, then you have to pass multiple screening, uh, physical screening tests, PSTs, I think they're called. Um, and the, listen to this, the recommended standards for this test um, to pass this screening, you have to be able to swim 500 yards in 8 to 9 minutes. Uh, complete 80 to 100 push-ups within two minutes. Complete 80 to 100 sit-ups within two minutes. Do 11 plus pull-ups. Run one and a half miles in 10 to 11 minutes. And all of that sort of needs to happen within a certain allotted amount of time. So, okay, so that's the, that's the, the, the screening test. So if you get a top score in that, then you get drafted to attend boot camp. Um, at boot camp, you take that test again. If you pass it again, you're in a pre-training program. Um, uh, let's see here. The, at, at boot camp, uh, we did that one. Okay, this is very complex. Um, after the pre-training training program, you enter something called BUDS, which is a five to six week um, training program where there's different phases and you do things uh, like a four-mile timed beach run, two-mile ocean swims, hundreds of push-ups and sit-ups. You're tested on life-saving skills, underwater knot tying, very important. Uh, it all culminates in a week of sleep deprivation, hundreds of miles of running, swimming, paddling, and then you're trained in diving skills, land warfare. That's BUDS. After BUDS, keeps going. There's an advanced training program called SQT where you learn the details of intelligence gathering, all the super cool special ops stuff. If you get through all that, you then become eligible to be selected by a SEAL team and join as a rookie and start your career as a SEAL. It's estimated that only 20 to 25% of those who try to qualify to become a Navy SEAL actually make it in because the standards are just so high. That's what it takes to get in. What does it take to get in with God? You have to own the fact that you are not qualified to get in with God. The standard is so high that none of us can live up to it. And David is experiencing that in real time in this psalm And he's crying out to God to be gracious to him. Because if God treats David the way he deserves to be treated, what's going to be the result? Eternal separation from God. Death forever. Look down at verse 5. And that very well could be what he's talking about in this verse. He says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? 
Um, that word sheol in the Bible has a very wide range of meaning. It's very contextual as to how you're to translate it as to what it's supposed to mean in each situation. Sometimes it refers to death like everyone experiences and maybe just as you die there's no opportunity to, uh, to respond to, to the, the offer of the gospel or to the good news that's, that's been proclaimed. Other times it can refer to actually being in hell or eternally separated from God. And it could be the very case that that is a sense in which David is using it here. That if God is not gracious to David in the midst of his sin, then he has no hope. Sin separates us from God. That's the first thing that we learn about ourselves. That it, our sin makes us guilty before God. What else do we learn about ourselves? We learn that sometimes life will feel impossibly difficult. Look at the honest language that David uses in this psalm. Verse 2, I am languishing. My bones are troubled. Verse 3, my soul greatly troubled. That's as deep as you can go. Verses 6 and 7, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. Um, This is describing utter despair. Um, The late Derek Kidner says, depression and exhaustion as complete as this are beyond self-help or good advice. There's no podcast that will get you out of this. There's no advice that, that, that will sort of turn things around for you when you're feeling this low. Oftentimes when we're feeling this low, we know all the right answers. We know the right thing to do. It's not a knowledge problem. More advice won't help. There's something deeper going on in us. We feel stuck. We feel at the end of ourselves, out of control, unable to make anything happen. And in the honesty of the Scriptures, this psalm is telling us to expect life to be this hard sometimes. And that's important for us to acknowledge. Um, Oftentimes when we're in a situation like this, we feel completely alone and we feel uniquely messed up or wrong or damaged because life feels impossible. And we get self-deceived in that moment and we look around and think that everyone else somehow does not have this thing going on in this way, that life is just okay for them. Uh, But this is saying that's not the case. The Bible is telling us to expect life to feel impossibly difficult at times. And sometimes these difficulties come at us because of what others have done to us. You know, David mentions enemies in this passage. Towards the end of the passage, in verse 7, he talks about his foes. Verse 8, he talks about workers of evil. In verse 10, he references his enemies. Um, So whether in his situation these enemies are causing the trouble or just maybe capitalizing on, on it and coming after David while he feels overwhelmed, we don't know for sure in his situation, but it adds this layer to the difficulties that we experience in life that sometimes it's just harm done from others to us. All right, what's behind all this? Why should we expect life to be difficult, to feel impossible at times? Because our world is fallen and broken. And that may be a new concept or a different way um, for you to think about the world around you. Um, Scripture says that God created the world good without sin, without all the yuck that we experience in our daily lives, in ourselves, in others, in the news, in the world around us. God created the world good and without all of that. Yet sin 
entered into the story in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve disobeyed God by choosing to do things their way rather than God's way. And it sent not just them, but all of humanity plummeting into sin and rebellion against God. And what happens when we rebel against God is we begin to go against the grain of which He made life to be lived. Sin messes everything up. Uh, The sin of humanity, humanity turning away from God, living on our terms rather than His terms, is the reason why our world is so messed up and is the reason why life can feel impossible at times. It's the reason why relationships can be really difficult. It's the reason why we hurt others and are hurt by others. It's the reason why we get sick. It's the reason why death is in our world. It's the reason why life is hard. And if you zoom out for a moment and think about what this psalm is doing for us, it is naming these things. That life can feel impossible and that sometimes we ourselves are the reason it's feeling impossible. And yet it's giving us words to name that before God, to actually get upset about it and cry out to God rather than wallow in despair or to try to just push through and ignore it and pretend like it's not that bad. This psalm gives us something productive and healthy to do And that's surrender that situation to God and to cry out to Him. All right, but if we're really going to cry out to God in the midst of our despair, we need to know something about God. What's He like? Does He really want to hear me crying out to Him? And if so, is He going to do anything about it? We've looked at what this tells us about ourselves. Let's think about what this psalm tells us about God. That's our second thing. What does this tell us about God? A few things. Uh, It tells us about his character, first of all. And right out of the gates, we see God's anger and wrath mentioned in verse 1. What are we to make of that? Uh, You know, it's not uncommon for people to say or to think something like, you know, I really prefer to believe that God is, is loving and accepting and he's not a God of anger or wrath or anything like that. He's just loving and accepting. How are we to think about that and understand that? If God is going to be truly loving and truly holy, and truly just, which we all want a God who is loving and holy and just, then He has to deal with sin. Why? Because sin and evil is the antithesis of who God is and what He's all about. And it destroys His people. And it destroys His world. So anything or anyone infected with sin cannot be in the presence of God. A God who is truly loving and just must exercise his perfect judgment on sin. He cannot just merely ignore it. And David knows this. And so he asks God not to be angry or not to be wrathful, which would, he would have justly deserved in this instance. So we see his anger and his wrath, but we also see his grace. Look at verse 2. As David appeals to God's grace, he says, Be gracious to me. All right, how can this be? How can a truly holy, loving, and just God who must pour out His wrath on sin, how can a God like that be gracious and yet still be perfectly consistent with His character? Uh, He can't just uh, merely uh, snap His fingers and just kind of not deal with the whole sin thing. It has to be dealt with properly. His wrath has to be poured out. Blood must be shed to pay for sin. And ultimately, this is what would happen to Jesus. Um. The just wrath of God was poured out in full on Jesus on the cross so that you and I could experience His grace. 
A few years ago, I heard the story of a woman named Stephanie Decker. Uh, Stephanie and her family lived up in uh, Henryville, Indiana. And in 2012, um, Henryville, Indiana was the epicenter of a very, very bad series of tornadoes. And uh, Stephanie Decker was at home with her young son and daughter, and they went down to the basement as a storm was approaching, and her kids kind of took shelter, and she put a blanket over them, and then she just with her body laid down on top of that blanket, which was covering her kids to offer extra protection for them as the storm came. And sure enough, the storm comes, and they're in the basement, keep in mind. The storm comes and totally just annihilates their house. There's debris everywhere. There's like furniture hitting her. Um, uh, all the materials from the house, ultimately two big beams end up falling on her. There's like a few moments of calm. Another storm, tornado comes through and does the same thing over and over again. And uh, finally the storms pass and unbelievably her children get out from under that blanket and walk out of the house without a scratch. Without a scratch. Uh, meanwhile, um, Stephanie, the mother, Survive, but ends up losing both of her legs and having a lot of other very serious injuries. What did she do? She absorbed the impact of the storm in her body so that her kids wouldn't have to, so they could walk out without a scratch. You see that this is what Jesus has done for us with God's wrath. He has covered us. He he has, uh, to use the illustration, put the blanket over us, laid on top of us, and just absorb the storm of God's wrath in His body so that we don't have to. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. And He does it by absorbing it in Himself so that we don't have to. God poured it out on Jesus so that we could experience His grace. God is gracious. That's the character that we see in this psalm. What else do we see about God's character? Verse 2, He's a healer. He is a healer. Uh, This is telling us that when we are at our wit's end, feeling stuck, when life feels impossible, we are languishing, to use David's word, uh, that God can meet us and actually do something about it. He can heal us. It's not always immediate. It doesn't always happen the way we want it. But God is a healer. He restores things. He restores us. And uh, the promise and trajectory of his word is that he is going to heal us in all things. Think about our call to worship from Revelation 21 this morning. He is going to make all things new. God's a healer. We see it in his character in this psalm. What else do we see? Verse 4, he's a deliverer. God rescues. Not only does he have the power and capability to rescue, but it's in his nature to do so. He's the God that comes to the rescue. He can deliver you from that impossible situation that you're in. He really can. And he's proven time and time again that he's capable and willing to do it. Nothing is impossible for God. He is the deliverer. Last thing we see about God's character. Verse 5. He's loving. He's loving. God doesn't do any of this begrudgingly. Um, He's not like the parent who, you know, after a really long day, finally sits down. This is just hypothetical. Finally sits down. Long day of parenting. Long day of work. And... Yeah, you feel like you've done, maybe done a lot. If you have kids, you've done a lot for them during the day. And then, uh, hey, mom, hey, dad, can you go get me a bowl of cereal? And, and you, you just want to say no. But you think, I need to be a good parent and go do this. And so you sort of roll your eyes and you huff and puff and you scoff. And you very begrudgingly go get the bowl of cereal and bring it back to your kid. Again, purely hypothetical. Um, that's not how God is. That's not how God treats us. Um, 
God comes to our rescue. He responds to us out of love. He's not weary of our crying out to Him. He loves to hear from us. And this psalm is actually telling us that to be a faithful follower of Jesus is to cry out to God. Faithfulness does not mean not crying out. It actually means crying out to God. Why? What an act of being a child to cry out to your father and ask for help. To trust him. To surrender to him. Part of being faithful is crying out to God. The psalm gives us the words for it. So we see his character. That's one of the things that it tells us about God. But this psalm also tells us how God responds to our crying out. So just uh, dial in, zoom in a little bit here. We've hinted at this, but look at the final verses in our passage. Verses 8 and 9 tell us that when we cry out, God hears us. Verse 9, it says He accepts our prayer. God actually listens and responds. Um, Do you know how good it feels to be heard? Um, I've seen a counselor regularly for years now, and I'm convinced that that as much benefit I I get from the the wisdom that he shares with me, um, I get maybe even more benefit from just really being listened to, from truly being heard in those moments. Uh, An older pastor once told me that um, the person in that impossible situation doesn't really need answers for the situation to be fixed, they just need to be heard. Uh, that, that ministry is more listening and loving rather than fixing. God hears us. He hears you. And, and here's the really good news. One day He will fix all of your problems. Not in this life. As long as we're in these bodies in this life, we will have problems. Jesus tells us this in John's Gospel. That in this world we will have trouble for sure. But he says, take heart because... He's overcome the world. He is going to fix things. That means that thing in your life right now that feels impossible, that is causing you to despair or maybe to numb out or to just ignore it or just try to power through, um, that thing will be perfectly resolved one day. Perfectly healed, perfectly restored, perfectly made new. That thing that feels so ultimate right now is not actually ultimate. And we get a glimpse of this in verse 10, that there is a change coming. It says, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Commentators point out that there's a reversal that happens in verse 10. How did the psalm start? Look at the the beginning of the psalm. How did it start? Who was troubled? David was troubled. We pray the prayer that David prayed. We are troubled. It starts with our trouble. How does it end? With this future promise that we'll be be rescued from our troubles and that God's enemies will then be troubled. So the day of Christ's return has this clarifying effect on us. Either we will welcome Jesus' return, seeing it as the true end of our troubles, because we've hidden ourselves in Him by faith, we'll welcome His return. Or we will dread His return. Because we have not put our faith in Him. We have not hidden ourselves in Him. And so when He returns, we dread it because it's actually the beginning of our true troubles. Trouble like we've never imagined from His judgment. Um, As we stand before God, there are only two options. To stand under Christ's perfect record or to stand under our own imperfect record. Um, To own up to the fact that we are not enough, but Jesus has been enough for us. 
and to surrender everything to Him, to hide ourselves in Him, or to give it a go on our own and to see if we can stand before Him. Will you welcome His return or will you dread His return? And do you hear the grace of God that's on offer to you this morning? Um, you have the opportunity to come to the one who is so gracious that he will, through his son, welcome you into his family like a child. And as a child in this family, it means you have a father that you can freely cry out to and know for certain that he will hear your cry and he will respond. Won't you trust him this morning? Let's pray. Father, oh, how we need uh, to be reminded that you hear us. And you don't just hear, but you rescue. You're the God who hears. You're the God who moves towards. You're the God who loves. You're the God who saves us. And Father, um, this is true. We all have impossibly hard things in life. Maybe some of us are feeling that acutely this morning. And God, um, for those who are in that um, deep, dark place, I pray that they would feel hope that they are being heard by you, that you can and you will rescue them. And that we know that for a fact because of what Jesus has done for us. Oh God, give us hope and give us faith. Give us words to cry out to you, both now and in the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.